You guys take a seat. I'll stay standing if you want. It's always hijacked by short people. Hold on. There we go. How many of you have made resolutions? Three of us. How, uh, did we all learn the lesson and <laughs> that they don't work or what? It's funny to see everyone's, uh, I'm going to spend less time on social media this, this, this year. And then they go ahead and post like six times. Like, oh, how's that going? Uh, and, 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 but I've noticed this trend. Instead of uh, resolutions, how many of you have words that define the next year? Um, same three people. Okay. <laughs> Four people. So there's this thing. And uh, it's happened in my house. And, and, and not me, so we'll let you figure out who it is. Uh, but I've seen this trend with some of my friends and some other people that I just kind of pay attention to. They get this word. And supposedly, this is how you do it. I haven't. Uh, but you spend time reflecting on the past year. And then you spend time reflecting on the year to come. And you come up with a phrase or a word that's supposed to define what this next year will be like. Okay? Take a minute. What would your word be? All right. <laughs> I heard this sucks. Yeah, that's one. Uh, <laughs> you whisper very loudly. Uh, but so some of my friends came up with evergreen or let it go or oak tree or whatever wreath you know what whatever they see this is supposed to define their year and so I started thinking not about mine like what mine would be because I, I think I would forget what my word would be but what would be a good phrase as we look forward to uh, what the church should be doing in this next year and what the church should be focusing on this next year and not as a vision of Bethany but just as as Christians As followers of Jesus, what should we care about? And we can all go back to Micah 6.8 where it says to love justice, mercy, and walk humbly, which is good. But I think that's a downstream. That's something that happens when everything else is lined up. I'm thinking of this. What if we shaped what we do as individuals as behind this, this question? What does God love? Because when you figure out what God loves, mercy... Humility and justice fall into place. And so as we look at what God loves, as we spend just a, a few minutes, what does God love uh, in general? We could find there's tons of things. God loves everything. But I think we can put it into three categories. God loves you. You know that, right? The bumper sticker tells you. God loves you. God loves people. And I think God loves the church. And I think when you look at those things, all of everything is encapsulated in those three things that God loves. So let's look at the first one. God loves you. We tend to uh, be really hard on ourselves. It it might seem a little bit silly to think, though, that's one of the things God loves. But it's very, very true. God loves you. Everything about you, everything that has shaped you, everything that has been formed, uh, God has seen you and understood you. God loves those places you hide. God loves the places where you are full of fear. God loves the places that brings you most shame. None of those places could could ever be subjected to God not loving you. God loves you. 
Because in all of our stories, in some way or another, something happened to us. And we start thinking that that place in our lives that was bruised or broken or bent over, those things we think that God could never love. Someone close to you might have used words that hurt and they forever left a mark on your soul. And you think, God can't love me. Because what that person said was true. Maybe a friend blew up at you in anger and no longer is your friend. And so you start thinking, if I can't have a friend, then am I lovable? Maybe you failed at something. Maybe religion or the church failed you and now you're wounded. What once stood tall for you is now hidden from sight and you want no one to see it. Then what we do with ourselves, what society does to us. Society likes to break us off when we're broken. Society, they snuff us out. They see our failures and they discard us. We're not valued. We're not important. Everything that was said about us becomes true. And then we start seeing ourselves as unlovable. The scripture shows a theme uh, that, that society uh, is wrong in doing this. When society breaks you off, God won't. In scripture, we see a picture after picture of the tender touch of the creator to those people who are wounded, to those people who have been through life's ringers, to those who are weary, to those who are bruised. It shows us that in God we have a friend that loves the ugly places in our lives and wants to bring wholeness to them. In God we find one who keeps our dreams, who meets our pains, and loves us deeply. Just a casual turn through the, Old, through the New Testament and the Old Testament, but today we'll look at the New Testament. We see Jesus, who is the perfect picture of God. And we see how he responds to people. In, in Luke's gospel, you can see that he's, uh, he comes up to a person who was pointed at, avoided, sneered at, and you see this person being mocked, yet Jesus approaches him. And the man with leprosy says, Will you heal me if you're willing? And Jesus says the words back to them, I'm willing. Be healed. And then Jesus touches him. Touch the untouchable. Jesus' picture of God loves the untouchables. A woman who's desperate for healing. Her hope is running out. She's been bleeding for years. All the doctors put their hands up like, I have no idea. She's out of hope. Yet in her desperateness, she walks up to Jesus. She's unclean. She can't be around people. Society has taken her to the side. She walks up to Jesus. If I can only touch the hem of his garment, maybe I'll be healed. And then she gets a hold of it. Jesus notices this, which is weird in the story because there's a bunch of people around him. How could he tell if someone touched him, which is what the disciples ask. But someone touched him in faith. And what does Jesus say to her? Take heart. Be encouraged. Your years of 13 years of being told, we don't know what's wrong with you. You're just wrong. She's encouraged. And he says, have peace. Because you're now healed. Another woman who's been used as a pawn, accused and rushed to judgment. And Jesus' words to her says, I don't condemn you. And then as he says that, the stones begin to hit the dirt. Because Jesus says, I don't condemn you, yet all of you people who are bringing here here are guilty of something as well. Instances where folks who are more like you and I than we care to admit, wondering if they could be loved, come face to face with Jesus who says he loves them more than you could ever imagine. And if we come to him with our questions, 
Jesus, are you willing to love us? His answer is, yes, I am. David writes about this love in Psalm 139. He says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You've comprehended my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. For where, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it together. Isaiah says it this way, see, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. God's love for you. He knows everything about you since the day of your conception. And before that, there's not a thing that he doesn't know and care about that he's not intimately aware of. That's love. The scary part is he knows the words that are on your tongue before you utter them. So remember that word you almost said? He loves that word too. Everything about you. God loves you. More than your parents love you. More than your friends love you. More than your spouse loves you. More than you love yourselves. You are of value. You are lovable. You are worth loving. You are worth saving. You are worth dying for. Jesus says this in John 15. Greater love has has no one than this. to To lay down one's life for his friends. And he does just that. I wonder how much your life would change. I wonder how much my life would change if I could get a hold of just the smallest corner of this truth. Because we do a lot of things in our world, in our lives, to be loved. We do a lot of things to get approval. But the reality is when we grasp for other people's approval, uh, we don't really need because we already have the approval of the one who matters. Everything about you is loved. Everything about you is accepted by God. He says, I love you the way you are. I refuse to leave you that way because I know how much better you could be. So the invitation is to come and see that God loves you just as you are. There's the story of Leah in Genesis, and I love the story of Leah and Rachel. Leah was, was the woman that Jacob married by accident. It's, it's a weird story. He didn't realize that he married Leah until the next day. And he was like, oh, you're not Rachel. But this story, Leah starts to do all of these things. And she's trying to gain the approval of her husband. And so she has children. She has sons. And after every one, she says, maybe my husband will love me. Maybe now he'll notice me. Maybe now he'll accept me. And then when she realizes that this is not working, She has one son and names him Judah. Great name for a son. It's what I named mine. And so it names him Judah and says, this time I'm not doing this to get my husband's approval. This time I will praise the Lord because he approves of me. He loves me. God loves you. The first thing that God loves, you. The second thing that God loves, people. It's easy to say that God loves people, and you think, well, God loves me, then he must love people. But there's a problem we have with this. Uh, It's been a problem ever since the middle of Genesis. We like to think that God loves just me, and he thinks you're okay. That's how it goes. In Genesis 12, God gives Abraham a promise, and he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now here's what's heard. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, and, and you will be great. And anyone who opposes, opposes you will be cursed. What's left out? 
your life will be blessed so that other people will see how good God is and they will be blessed because of you. We like to take this love of God and make it ours. So therefore it comes like this, and this is what's happened in the history of Israel. They have the approval of God. They've been called as priests in Exodus. They were called to Sinai. They were made priests to represent God through the whole world. And what did Israel do? They said, God loves us more than you, and unless you become like me, God doesn't have, you don't have God's approval. They left out the most important part of the blessings, and the prophets picked up on this. In the prophets, you see, Israel, you missed it. You missed the blessing. You missed what God was doing through you. You missed that God loves you and blesses you so that you can be a light to other people who are different than you. We do this still. We've become real good at it. I agree with people who agree with me. Uh, And we're coming into this 2020 elections. Have you noticed And if you think the last four years have been a rough one, buckle up. It's going to get worse. Uh, Grab your popcorn. Because here's what we do. If you vote like me, you're good. If you have your theology lined up like my theology, you're good. If you have the same style as I do, you're good. If you agree with me ethically, socially, morally, if you line up like me and you look exactly like me, then God must love you too. But if you're different, it's it's up in the air whether or not God loves you or not. And this is what got Jesus in trouble, right? Because here comes Jesus in a world that is more divided than you can imagine. He comes in and who does he have dinner with? Tax collectors. Who does he allow to wash his feet? Prostitutes. Who does, he innate, who does he empower? Women. Who does he call as his disciples? Measly fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and all of these people whose society has written off. He calls them close. He allows them to come. He touches the untouchable and he loves the unlovable. He loves people. The differences in people And I wish we could say we do the same. We do, but oftentimes we have a difficult time doing it. We might know in our heads that God loves people, but it's hard to show through the way we live. Perhaps it's just been God speaking to me about this for the last couple years, so you can see my external processing. Maybe you're the same with me. But in looking at what's coming around, I think this is a lesson that we all could start to learn. Something that I do. Uh, at least for me, and I don't know about you, is I have this thing where I love to label people. And it, it's, it's not something that's good, but I make spectacular boxes for people, and they look great. But when I, when I find out what you're reading, when I find out what you're listening to, find out where you went to school, I go, boom, here you are. That's your label. This is what you do. And I'm saying that's not a good thing to do. We have, as humans, the uncanny ability to judge people. It was the first sin, the knowledge of good and evil, to be able to judge between good and bad and slap labels on people. That's good, that's bad. And we've been doing that a lot ever since that last time in the garden. I wonder... And this is a challenge for me. I wonder if we can begin to see people more and more as Jesus would see them. 
Jesus valued all who came into contact with him, even the ones who hurled insults at him, even the ones who tried to trap him, even the ones who betrayed him, even the ones who nailed him to the cross. Jesus valued them. All people matter to God. They matter to him even when they don't believe in him. Christ died for them. Jesus loves them. God has a plan for their lives and he wants to have a relationship with them. The Bible says this in Mark 6. When Jesus landed on the shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were the ones who were lost and he looked at them, didn't say that they're dumb for being living this way. He goes, they need direction. When's the last time you saw someone who's obviously broken and instead of slapping a label on them, you had mercy and said, they, they don't need this, this, this. They don't need another program. They need to know that Jesus loves them more than they can ever imagine. That's the first start. Jesus loves people no matter what. Jesus loves people, period. What would it be like for us as a church to grab a hold of that? So no one feels weird for walking in here. So no one feels ostracized, but they can come and, ex- and, and experience Christ, have the Spirit minister to them, and be drawn to the cross where all of us are at with level ground, because he loves all of us the same. God loves you, God loves people, and lastly, God loves the church which is weird to say, but we are getting real good at jumping on the church and piling on and talking about everything the church has done wrong. I'm not talking about just Bethany, even though Bethany's there. I'm talking about the big C church, all church, the organization known as the church. It's hard to look on any kind of Christian website or blog or post and not see people saying the church is failing here, 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 and then maybe here. And the truth is, most of that is right. yes. The church has failed. The church has done some awful things. The church has hurt many people. The church has successfully kept people away from Jesus. And that's not good. And if the church has hurt you, I am so sorry for that. It shouldn't be that way. The church should be a place where people can come and experience the wholeness of Christ. Church leaders have done awful things. Church leaders have said unspeakable things, all in the name of Jesus. Many have been hurt by the church, and it breaks my heart. And because of our experiences or other people's experiences with the church, it becomes way too easily way too easy for us to develop this dislike towards the church. We start saying that the church is the problem. But here's the problem with that. Though we might not be happy with the church, God loves the church. Absolutely. And and Jesus died for the church. Now, he doesn't love all the things that the church is doing or saying, might probably. He doesn't like that the church has hurt people, but he still loves the church. There's a constant, there's, there's this, my notes aren't moving, there we go. The church was and the church is God's plan. We'd like to say, let's just scrap the church and start over. Can't do that. God says, this is the church. Uh, You can look at the church and you can look at it this way. There is more biblical evidence, at least in my opinion, that the church is more elected than the people who are in it. 
God says to the elect church, you get to opt in or not. The church has been God's plan since the beginning of time. How did this kingdom get spread to the rest of the world? The church. Not the building of the church. The church isn't, you take away these four walls, we're still a church. The church is a group of people who have been called out by Jesus to, to change the world and take the kingdom message to those around it. The church's uh, word for church in the, in the Greek is ekklesia, which means called ones. You are the church. Doesn't matter where we meet. Could be your living room, it could be the bathroom, it could be the gas station. If there's a group of people met, you're having some church. And God loves the church. It's more than a building. It's God's plan A, and there is no plan B. But looking and discussing the problems of the church, we need to remember this one thing. Here's what Paul says about Christ and his love for the church. Husbands, love your wives. Now, we miss this part because we get so focused on the ones that, that, that we, the part where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. That's not the point that Paul is talking about here, so Hold on to that one. Here's the main point of what Paul is getting at. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God loves the church and his desire for the church is to be an example for him throughout the world, holy and blameless. It's easy to pile along, pile on the church. It's easy to say this is the problem, but when doing so, remember who you're talking about. You don't go up to someone and say, your spouse is trash. That's an easy way not to make friends. Remember the respect that Jesus has for the church. Remember the affection that Jesus loves the church, uh, that Jesus has for the church. It's Jesus' bride. You are Jesus' bride. So if you don't love the church, if you're frustrated or jaded or grieved by the church, I believe that God is sad about those things too. And I believe that he most likely feels the same as you do. However, the answer is not cynicism. Cynicism is easy. The answer is to jump in and be a part of the solution. In Acts 6, we see this growing church in Acts 2, which is huge, right? And then they start having problems. There was this meal that they would have for those who are, uh, were there, the widows and orphans. And there are these group of people that come in. And in Acts 6, uh, they're, they're a group of people, and they're mostly Greek people. And they come to the elders of the church. They come to the disciples, and they say, we have a problem, there's certain widows and orphans who are not getting enough food. And the disciples say, yeah, you're right. This is a problem. And then they start thinking, okay, how are we going to solve this? And if you look in Acts 6, we don't have a lot of time left to go into it, but if you look in Acts 6, the same people that brought the problem to the elders of the church were the ones who were tasked to solve the problems that were brought to the attention to the church. So here's what I get from that. It's easy to sit back and say, we need this, we need this, we need this. Now, church staff, go do it, and I'm going to sit here and wait. That's not the model we see in the church. It's not the model we see in Acts. 
God has laid on your hearts various things that you get passionate about, whether it's care for the homeless, whether it's neighborhood outreach, whether it's children, whether it's middle school, high school, whatever. God has put something on you where you're like, yes, why isn't the church doing something? And God's saying, don't wait for the church. You do it. You see the problem. You can also see the solution. You see the way that the church has messed things up. Yes, but don't, stay, don't sit and stew in your cynicism. Those things are not, those things that have, you have seen are not excuses, but maybe they are your challenge. It's now, that's God pulling out to you saying, yes, that's a huge problem, and I've gifted you and enabled you and called you to do it. To get in, get your hands dirty, and be a part of the solution. How do we grow out of our cynicism for the church? We start to care, and we start to solve it ourselves. Now, it's not me and, and Jen and Dylan and Carrie just being lazy and saying, you solve it. No, we want to be your biggest cheerleaders here. What's God put on your heart to do? How can we cheer you on, and how can we remove every obstacle in your way in order for you to do it? You want to lead a gathering? Cool. We'll make that as easy as possible. You want to serve in kids' ministry? Awesome. Let's make that as easy as possible so you can do what God has called you to do. You want to help with this middle school program that we're starting? Great. We need your help. How can we make it so that, so that you can step in? This is the role of the church, to allow the individual believer to live out the way that God has called them to live. Not to be a place where we just have programs for people to come and consume. This is the role of the church. And in doing so, the church becomes a place where the kingdom of God is spread. The church becomes a place where the people begin to notice something is happening there. God is working in that place. I believe with all of the imperfections that we still have in the church, with all of the mistake, with all of the egos that are involved in every single church possible, I believe that it's still God's primary way of of expanding his kingdom and bringing more people to know him. There was one theologian that said, I've searched for the perfect church. I think it was Spurgeon. I'm going to look for the perfect church, but the problem is when I join this perfect church, I'm going to step in, I'm going to join it, and then I'm going to spoil it. There's no perfect church. Why? Because we're all involved. There's no such thing as one. But we do serve a perfect God and a perfect Jesus who can say, I still want to use you broken and misshapen and imperfections and all. I still want to use you to reach the world around you. These are three things that I think God loves. God loves you. God loves people. God loves the church. It's super simple. But yet it's so complex because in all of these, it's layered like an onion, like Shrek. It's layered in there and there's meaning and you could dive into the depths of it. What does it mean for you to love yourself like God loves you? What does it mean for you to love people as God loves people? To see people as God sees those people? What does it mean for you to love your church like Jesus loved the church? Three things to shape our year together. Three things to shape your life. Bigger than strategic priorities, bigger than any kind of strategy or budget or whoever's getting in, giving or not giving the sermon. Bigger than any kind of worship song. The three pillars as we move forward. God loves you. God loves people. 
God loves the church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you do love us more than we could imagine, more than we can ever think, more than we could ever dream. We thank you for that love. And God, as we look at our lives, as we look at this year ahead, as we look at what you're doing in, through, and around us, may we be sensitive into the ways that you're calling us. And when we notice something broken, whether it's the person next to us or the church where we're sitting, God, may we see that brokenness not as a way to be cynical, but as a way to step in and be a part of a solution. God, may we fall in love with these three things just as much as you've fallen in love with them. And may that love spread. And may this neighborhood be changed. May you use us, imperfections and all. In Jesus' name, amen.